So here's where we're at. Go ahead, open your Bibles to James chapter 3. So we're going verse by verse, line by line through the New Testament letter of James. It was written by Jesus' younger brother, and uh, it is written to a, a lot of the church kids, people who grew up in church who have a lot of head knowledge, but they have a hard time like connecting it to everyday stuff. And so James is really concerned, even obsessed, with showing us how real faith shows up in real life. That's what that IRL stands for, in real life, faith in real life. And the, the way that I thought that I would set up today as we're going to James chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 13 through 18, is, uh, you know, the, some movies just have more staying power than others. Some movies just stick around and generation after generation watches and rewatches. And you know a movie has made it when there's multiple scenes out of that movie that have become a giphy that you could send in a text to your friends. And one of those movies <laughs> that has turned into a lot of giphies is Dumb and Dumber. Okay, has anybody seen Dumb and Dumber? Let's just go ahead and poll the people. Okay, so Dumb and Dumber, it's been around for uh, a, a while, and it, there's, there's three scenes in Dumb and Dumber that have, they've all been turned into giffies. You could like literally text this to your friends after service. It's not right now, but um, it, you could literally you know, pull all these scenes out of it. But one was whenever Harry and Lloyd, they start out, and they're just do, they're, it's just two guys who make some really dumb decisions all the time, but you know, they kind of come upon some good fortune and make, make, make it through. And so uh, there's this one time whenever they trade in a moped for a minivan, uh, or a, a minivan for a moped, uh, moped. and uh, one looks at the other and says, just when I thought you couldn't do anything dumber, you totally redeem yourself, <laughs> and you trade in the van for a moped. It's like, seriously, who thinks that way? And then they have that, that moment in uh, the restaurant where they put all those hot peppers on that guy who was like after them, and they're just like, how's your burger? <laughs> yeah, yeah, how, how is it? Because take, take a bite into that thing, doesn't go well for the guy. And then there's the, the one at the end, I think probably the most iconic is when, um, you know, um, I, think it's, I think it's Harry, or is it, no, I, I get too confused, but one of the guys, he's like standing in front of like the, his dream girl, Mary Swanson, and he's like, what are my chances? Just level with me. Tell me the truth. And she looks back and she just says, not good. It's like, not good, as in like, like one in a hundred, he's like, one in a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. That's the line right there. Okay, we, uh, we, we, we love these movies and moments, right? Uh, until stuff like that happens to us. Until we do dumb things. Until we're the people whose conduct becomes laughable. Let me just ask you this question. Uh, and I've got a lot of source material for this, but I could, I could go on. But have you done something dumb before? Like, I don't know, how much time do we have? <laughs> like, we could really get into this, right? Uh, we could talk a lot about this. Here's the, here's the hope and here's the help out of James 3 is... Jesus came to save foolish people, and he, he came to give foolish people wisdom. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is it is given to us to prevent us from making some really dumb decisions, to spare us from a lot of the pain that comes along from our foolish ways. And, and this is so important to God, because there's, there's different ways that you can think about the Bible. The Bible can be an intimidating book, right? I mean, there's just a lot, lot to it. And uh, one of the ways you can think about it is like law and gospel. So law, it's all these commands that you've got to keep, but you can't keep. And so Jesus comes and he keeps them uh, perfectly and completely in your place. And that's the gospel. And he credits his resume to you so that you can be made right with God. That's, that's the gospel. Um, but then there's another way to think about it is wisdom and folly. There is one who is wise, that's God. And all of us as, as, as these rebellious creatures have become foolish by uh, going our own way. And the only way that, 
we can change that is by returning to God and having Him put His wisdom back into our life by grace through faith. And so here's, here's the cool thing is um, wisdom shows up you know, all throughout Scripture. So one of Jesus' most famous parables, uh, the, the parable um, of the man who built his house on the rock, right? So you got a, a wise man who builds his house on a rock. you got a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The storm comes just totally capsizes the man who the foolish man who built his house on the sand, but the man who built his house on the rock, it remains. Why? Because he made a wise decision. And the person who does the word of God is like the man who builds his house on the rock. So that was like one of Jesus' most famous parables. Uh, and then there's an entire genre, in fact, of wisdom. Like if you go to the middle of your Bible, it's almost like God said, I don't want you to miss this, so I'm going to put it right in the center. You know, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. It's all wisdom literature. And so God wants to give us wisdom. And uh, Proverbs, we've, we talked about this before, that's one of James's favorite, probably his favorite book of the Bible. And Jesus is his favorite source to quote. And so with Proverbs and Jesus coming together, wisdom is in the wheelhouse of James who we're reading. And what he's going to do today is he's going to contrast two types of wisdom, wisdom from below with wisdom from above. And what he's basically going to show us is that the source of your wisdom will determine the course of your life. The source of your wisdom will determine the course of your life. If you get wisdom from above, that's going to lead you to life. If you get wisdom from below and all the things that the world says is right and good and true, that's going to lead you to death. And so let me give you the whole sermon in a sentence real quick up front in case you're taking notes. It's this. Wisdom from below brings conflict but wisdom from above brings peace. So wisdom and foolishness, conflict and peace, it's an interesting way to talk about wisdom, but it actually makes a lot of sense. It's very timely because uh, most of us have more conflict and less peace, and all of us want more peace and less conflict. And James is establishing the significance of this for all. If you want to see that reversed, if you want to go from conflict to peace, then pay close attention to God and His Word and what, what the gospel can, how that can turn around. So, verse 13, let's go ahead and let's get started. Who is wise and understanding among you? All right, we'll stop right there. So James asks a loaded question right here. He's, he's, he's basically saying, who in your life would you consider wise? And would the people in your life consider wise? would consider you wise. Uh, the, the, and here's the thing about these questions. This question is, it's really hard to answer unless you know what wisdom is, unless you know where to find wisdom. And so let's, let's talk about this. Let's define our terms. What is wisdom? Probably the best definition I've ever heard. Wisdom is living, in, uh, living uh, God's ways in God's world. Living God's ways in God's world. And so if, if wisdom is going to be going to God and living his ways and being about, uh, being about what he says is wise, then the opposite of belief in God would be foolishness, to try to find it somewhere else. And this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so we talk about what wisdom is, but what, what is wisdom not? Because sometimes this gets confused. Wisdom is not the same as knowledge. There are a lot of people who know a lot of things but aren't necessarily wise. 
I mean, if that were the case, like you could just get any form of higher education, you could go to college, and it's like, boom, you're wise. But I, I, I mean, how many of us, whether you're in college or you've been through college, you know, man, I, I, I know that's, that in and of itself is not enough. I got to know what to do with all this knowledge. So not, wisdom is knowledge applied. It's not just a, knowledge uh, accumulated. Additionally, wisdom is not pragmatism. Some of you are very pragmatic. You're really astute around the shoulds and the should nots of life. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. However, you can be pragmatic and not be wise. So, uh, for example, if God truly is the source of wisdom, and the way we get to God is by faith, not by sight, uh, not by the scientific method, that means that the entry point of wisdom is going to clash with conventional pragmatism. Because pragmatism can be an obstacle of faith, because what's the whole premise of pragmatism? It's seeing is believing. And what's the whole premise of the Christian life? It is believing is seeing. So you can be pragmatic and not see prayer as a priority. We need that, right? You can be pragmatic and not think that miracles are possible because you can't see them, you can't explain them. You can be pragmatic and not think that salvation is necessary because, I mean, deep down right, aren't we all just kind of good people? And then there's like Hitler and, and Hamas and all these other people who are like, you know, you know the bad people. It's like, but, but, but me, like, I'm, I'm good, right? Well, that, that, that would be a very pragmatic way of, of thinking about it. But uh, there's so much more to it than just knowledge and pragmatism. Where does wisdom come from? This is an important question. Well, James already answered this question in James chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, he says this, in fact, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, again, James, he loves the book of Proverbs. So when he says, if you need wisdom, you go and you ask God, he's probably thinking about something like Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And this agrees with other New Testament writers in Colossians 2, 3. Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are located in Christ. So what does this tell us? This tells us that God is the source of all wisdom. And you can't claim to be wise and move away from or try to go around God. That would be a little bit like, you know, uh, going, going to your spouse and being like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to get groceries um, at Home Depot. Is there anything that you would like for me to pick up from the meat and poultry section while I'm there? <laughs> They're going to look at you and be like, you can get a lot of things at Home Depot, but meat and poultry is not one of those things. That's, you're not going to get that. And you can get a lot of things from the world, but wisdom is not one of those things. You're looking in the wrong place. And so who, who are the wise people among us? That, that was really the question that James is getting at. There's a lot right here just in this first part of verse 13. And I, I wanted to uh, just, I guess, explain it this way. It depends on who you ask. Who are the wise people among us? And when we go to Proverbs... We're going to see four, we see four profiles of people. Three are unwise and one is wise. And any teaching on James, it's never going to be reaching when you reference Proverbs. Proverbs is so enmeshed in the spirit of James that you almost have to understand Proverbs before you can understand what James is saying. So I want to pull out Proverbs 1.22. This should be on the screen. Um, if, and you can write this down, maybe take a look. But um, there's three profiles of people that... Uh, Proverbs talks about that I want to show you that are not wise. And here's what he says, uh, the wisdom writer. How long, O simple one, so that's profile number one, the simple person. Will you love being simple? 
How long will scoffers, that's profile number two, the scoffer, delight in their scoffing, and fools, profile number three, hate knowledge? So there is the simple, the scoffer, and the fool. What is the difference between the three? Well, if we can know that, it's going to give us a lot of clarity around wisdom. So the simple is the person who doesn't know and or doesn't want to know. The classic example of this is your child. Because if you think about when a child is born, I mean, literally knows nothing. Has to, be, has to be taught everything. And so you, what do you do as a conscientious parent? You're going to teach your kids. You're going to discipline your kids. You're going to socialize your kids so that they can be around other people and not make it all about themselves and they know how to relate to other people and people enjoy being around them. That's socializing. And you're going to expose them to other experiences in life. And the, the example is astute because we all start off like children in anything new that we start. Uh, for example, uh, you get married, all right? And you realize really quickly, oh, uh, I, this is not just going to be like the, a lifelong honeymoon. This person is sinful. Uh, this, this person can do some things that annoy me at times. And I'm not supposed to go anywhere. I'm supposed to stay put and love them through it. Uh, okay, now a lot of that simple-mindedness is getting confronted. And other things like never bought a house or never bought a car before. Like you would be simple going into those experiences. Um, if you've never been a parent before, okay, becoming a parent, that would be very simple. You're not going to understand what it's like to be a parent until like you can actually do it. Uh, if you've never worked a full-time job before, I mean, it, it, it's going to rattle you at first because you're simple going into that and you realize, wow, you have to work really hard to make money. <laughs> and, you, and you have to be really wise to keep money. And so these are all examples. But then there's the fool. So there's the simple. Then there's the fool. This is the person who's been taught a bunch of things but thinks that they know better. And this is the, the people who are probably most vulnerable to, to grow up and become fools are those who grow up in church but then go on to decide that they know better. So this is, this is the person who says, um, I am unique. So I, I, can overs- I can spend more than I make and I can still be fine financially. Um, I can take more than I can give, and I can still have healthy relationships. Or I can date this person who's toxic, and it's actually going to turn out, and I'm going to change them more than they change me. It's kind of like saying, if I wanted to get to Charleston, well, you know, it's me, I'm special, I'm going to go 17 north. The problem is, nobody can get to Charleston going that direction, because Charleston is 17 south. You might end up in Wilmington, but just because you think that's where you're going, that doesn't mean that uh, that's where you're going to end up. And this is the way that the fool thinks and relates. And then there's the scoffer. You're not going to see as many of these in the church, but this is the person who has a settled rebellion against God and is recruiting others to do the same. And so the scoffer is talked about in Psalm chapter 1 as well. That's also wisdom literature, where uh, the, the, the wise, uh, blessed man is discouraged from sitting in the seat of scoffers. And so what does that tell us? That, that tells us that the scoffer is sitting in a seat of authority, teaching the culture, trying to entice you away from God's ways. And then there's the wise. Okay, so the wise is all over James. It's all over Proverbs. But it's, it, the wise person, how do you know if you can be a wise person? You could, you could pursue a path of wisdom today, whether you're simple, whether you've been a scoffer, whether you're foolish. Here's how you, you can be wise, is you admit those areas where you're simple. You admit those areas where you have been foolish. 
and then you uh, assume a teachable posture, and across time, after, after you have a humble spirit and a humble heart, you begin to accumulate wisdom. And this leads us to how do we get wisdom for ourselves? We're just, just trying to deal with some really practical questions up front. How do we get wisdom from our, uh, for ourselves? Well, um, there's three ways, uh, from God's Word and prayer, from God's people, and from practical experiences. So I want to talk about these quickly. Um, we're going to get wisdom from God's Word and prayer. There's this moment in Mark chapter 9 whenever Jesus uh, comes down from this incredible moment in his ministry where his glory was revealed to a few of his disciples, and he comes down and there's this, there's this individual who's been possessed by a demon and has been possessed by darkness. And his disciples have been trying to cast out the demon, trying to bring order from chaos, trying to bring light into the darkness, and they couldn't do it. And, what, and they're like so puzzled. People are like, hey, aren't these your disciples? They're supposed to be able to be doing your work, but they couldn't get this darkness out. What gives? And Jesus comes down and he says, oh, this one can only come out by prayer. And he casts out the demon. Did you know there are certain forms and figures of darkness and chaos in your life that will only come out through prayer? And it doesn't matter how much conventional pragmatism or street smarts you think that you have or consulting the social media influencer, the politician, the athlete, or the celebrity. It's not coming out until you go to God. And so God's word is where you go to the word of God to get a word from God. It's where you get clarity out of confusion. It's where you see the power of light come to fill what was previously dark. So God's word and prayer, and this is why we, we try to root everything that we talk about in God's word, because we want to be wise. But then there's also uh, from people. So Proverbs 15.22 says that for a lack uh, of counsel, plans fail. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So basically what that's saying is that if, if you're so sure of yourself that you don't want to ask the godly, wise people in your life what they think about big decisions, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, financially, romantically, you're going to pay a really high dumb tax over the course of your life. That's, that's what is, is being said in Proverbs, and that's what James is getting at right here. But then there's also practical experiences, because what, we all start out simple, right? We're all simple-minded on some level, and so the only way that we can become wise is that we get exposed to practical experiences. Think about the disciples before they met Jesus and then after they met Jesus. What did Jesus constantly do with his disciples? Gave them exposure and experience that was all in an environment of prayer, the Word, and worship around one another. That's how we get wisdom for ourselves. And so James goes on in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So that, that phrase, the meekness of wisdom, is, is just explosive. There's so much to it. But I want you to notice how James says that uh, we, sh we show our good conduct by, and, and we are to actually show our works to the people who watch us. And so as we saw a few weeks ago, James is not teaching faith by works. Uh, he's teaching a faith that produces works. And what James does is he makes the case that just like Jesus, though we were sinners, showed his love for us by dying on the cross instead of us, just like Jesus did that, so will we show our love through our conduct. People will be able to see it. And so what does loving conduct look like? Well, James, James spills the tea. He says it's the meekness of wisdom. This is exactly what it looks like. And uh, what, so what is meekness? Uh, 
you know, one of our core values is clarity, so we want to define our terms. Meekness defined, it's not weakness. It's not cowardice. Meekness is power under control. So that's the definition of meekness. Let me give you a description of meekness. Think about the dad who gets on the floor and wrestles with his kids. That dad is going to subdue his power, his strength, so that the experience can be enjoyable, so that it can be developmental for the kids. It's interesting. Uh, all truth is God's truth, by the way. But there are, there are um, psychologists who will say that one of the health, the, a mark of healthy kids who grow up and you know, they just excel in these areas of life is that their parents got on the floor and played with them as they were growing up. Isn't that interesting? But that's going to require meekness, right? It's the, it's the meekness of wisdom. And what James is saying is this is so helpful. He's saying that truly wise people apply that same meekness to all of life. So a few specific examples. Let's say all right, power under control, that's meekness, and, and, and it's going to pair with wisdom. If you are really intelligent, you could easily overpower people with your intellect. If you are really articulate, you could easily overpower people just with the smoothness of your speech. But what the meekness of wisdom says and looks like is meet people where they are. Don't make people feel dumb. Look for opportunities when it's appropriate to impart and encourage with the wisdom and the ability to articulate that God has given you but you're doing that to build people up. You're not doing that to, to break people down. That's the meekness of wisdom. Uh, or if you're really outgoing and or extroverted, you could easily overpower other people with your persona, especially the introverts in the house who need about two to three business days to prepare for social interaction. We need to be polite, all right? And so the meekness of wisdom says, maybe take the focus off yourself and put it on other people. Uh, maybe keep some of those strong, forceful, convincing opinions to yourself. Maybe encourage others to go first, if that's the outgoing extrovert. But for those of you who have been deeply wronged and wounded, and who, I mean, who isn't in this category in this room? Like, you could quickly overpower people with bitterness and slander. But the meekness of wisdom reminds you that forgiveness is God's way. That talking to them, not about them, is God's way. That maybe biting your tongue when their name comes up and they're not around is probably better than just bringing them through the mud and confessing all their sins for them. The meekness of wisdom will trust that God is just to deal with that person in the proper way, at the proper time. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's meekness. And then there's another group for all the, here's three reasons why I'm right and you're wrong group of people in the house. The meekness of wisdom says you might not be as right as you tend to think that you are. And instead of making a point, make a difference. That's what Jesus did, by the way. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You don't have ears to hear? I'm going to move on instead of just continue to tell you why you're wrong. Make a difference instead of making a point by admitting you have blind spots too. And in those rare moments when you get it wrong, say out loud, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Let's not nudge our spouses right now, okay? Because I know that we're all in the schoolhouse. 
But maybe you could say something just like, that's a really good point of view. I had never thought about it that way. Do you realize how much life that would bring to relationships? Well, that's, what, that's the meekness of wisdom. And here's what James wants us to know at this point. What a person does with their power and privilege are the measures of godly wisdom. I mean, think about it. Who was the wisest person to ever live? Oh, Jesus, obviously. What did he do with his power and privilege? I want to show this to you. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming meek by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is the, the, the keystone text on meekness in scriptures, is that Jesus, though he had power over death, was meek to the point of death so that you and I could have life through his death. So he's using his power to bring privilege to others, instead of just feeling entitled to it himself, even though he easily could have. And that's the role of a humble servant. Jesus didn't just come to be a nice guy. He came on a rescue mission to give his life in exchange for yours. And you just think about, why is that such a big deal? It's like, okay, somebody died 2,000 years ago in the Middle East on a cross. I mean, I feel bad, but what is that? why is that such a big deal? Well, in Romans 5, Paul makes the case that you wouldn't die for just anybody. Um, I mean, most of us, I mean, you wouldn't even die for the best people that you know, much less the worst. At least it would be hard to die for the best people. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Though he was the best, he freely died for the worst of sinners. And that's what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 when he says, Jesus became obedient. He became meek, even to the point of death on a cross for people who didn't deserve it. And so Jesus, what did he do? He didn't, just, he didn't just trade his power and privilege. He also traded places with us. You see, the good news of the gospel, receive this, believe this, share this, is that Jesus died because of us and Jesus died instead of us. Jesus died because of us. That means that he took, he, he took the penalty, the due penalty for sin onto himself in exchange for, for you receiving his righteousness instead. So, you're, so, so he takes the, the, the penalty and he takes the punishment, but he dies, in, he, he dies because of us, but he dies instead of us. That means he was willing to do this. That means that he, he doesn't just want to take the punishment, he wants you to be pardoned. He wants you to live a free life where you don't have to be bitter, where you don't have to be jealous, where you don't have to build your own kingdom because Jesus is a lot better. And so what the gospel says is that real faith looks to Jesus what he did in meekness, and say, that somehow counts for me. I don't know everything about how that works, just like I don't know everything about how everything underneath the hood of my car works, but I still trust it to get me where I'm going. I look at the cross, and I look at Jesus, and I look at the resurrection, and I say, what he did somehow counts for me, and that's faith, and it's how we're saved. And it's the hope of the world. And so if you think about this, if faith in a God who showed kindness through meekness who rescued the world through meekness is what made all the difference in his life, don't you think that meekness is going to make the difference in the lives of the people around you? And if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus, wouldn't meekness be the way that we model? 
And so just as Jesus meekly yielded his power and privilege to the will of the Father, so should his people be willing our, our, or yielding our will to his will as well. That's godly wisdom. It's from above. It's heaven down, not hell up. It's living God's ways in God's world. And so here we come, verses 14 through 18. We're going to have a brisker pace through these. There was just a lot of concrete and rebar that we need to lay whenever we're talking about wisdom. But what James is going to do, he's going to compare two types of wisdom. Wisdom from below that brings conflict. Wisdom from above that brings peace. And the question becomes, do you want your life to be marked by conflict or peace? That's the question that James is putting in front of us. And so it's all determined by the source. The course of your life is going to be determined by the source of your wisdom. So the first thing that we see right here is wisdom from below brings conflict. And this is in verses 14 through 16. And we're actually, we're going to deal with this on a deeper level next week. I hope we'll come back. But James is going to tee us up today. He's like, we're coming in on conflict. And we're going to talk about how to fight Jesus style, how to, how to have a, a conflict and it not turn into combat. So verse 14, here he goes. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, jealousy and selfish ambition are the opposite of wisdom. They are foolish lies. They're false to the truth. And so let's talk about these two. Let's talk about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So here's, here's what jealousy is. Jealousy is saying, I want what you have. But envy, envy actually it's deeper and darker if you keep if you keep giving yourself over to this, envy is, I don't want you to have it. And I would be willing to see you suffer in order for that good that you have that I feel like I'm more entitled to to be stripped away from you. And this is what's in our hearts. Did you know that it was jealous envy that drove the Pharisees to condemn and crucify the Lord of glory? It, in, in Matthew 27, 18, it's, it literally says that Jesus knew that that was the reason why the Pharisees handed him over. And did you know that that's the reason why you're going to hand over the people in your life to death? Why, why you're going to try to punish them and see hurt come upon them, jealousy and envy. And we are some, let's talk about this, very jealous people. I mean, we're, we're jealous uh, of, of everything. We're, we're jealous of cars. We're, je we're jealous of kitchens. We're, we're jealous of, of kids. All, all, I mean, you, you name it, we're jealous. And you can't talk about jealousy without talking about social media. Uh, one of the, and one of the reasons that social media can be so devastating is how it prompts our hearts to be jealous. So if you do any, any research on this, go Google this, you, you'll find that all the counselors, all the self-help experts, they all say the same thing. Overuse of social me media produces depression, anxiety, and jealousy, especially in young females and women. And if we were to call it something, they say, if we were to put this like as, a, as, a, as an illness, we would call it comparison-itis. And so think about comparison-itis like literally a modern-day illness where our value is relative to what other people have. And we're constantly comparing uh, uh, ourselves to others. And there were some other studies that looked at um, who we're most likely to be jealous of. And this was, this was really interesting. Um, it makes sense. Men are more likely to be jealous of men. And women are more likely to be jealous of other women. That was the first thing that they found, typically. The second thing that they found is the people that we're most likely to be jealous of are going to be within five years of our age and the same gender. 
So the person who you're probably the most jealous of is going to be within five years of your age and probably the same gender. And, and why is this? I mean, because I mean, if you look at somebody who's maybe 20 years older than you, it's like, yeah, there's time. Over time, I could get there. But if you look across the aisle and you see somebody who's in a similar season and stage of your life and they have something good that you don't, that you feel like you should, man, that's, that's a recipe for jealousy because it's, it's harder to just dismiss something like that. Uh, so what, basically what happens with jealousy is we don't do well with others doing well. And so let me put some heart-level questions out there. Who are you jealous of? Who are you jealous of? Is it the person at work who makes more, who gets more vacation than you? Is it that person with, with young kids who has a lot of help from their family and you don't? Is it the person who's in a relationship? Is it, is it the person who can get pregnant? Is it, the, is it the person who has the kids who do and know and say things that you wish that yours would, but you would never say it out loud? Is it the person who's happily married? I mean, who, think about it. Who are you jealous of? And here's the next question while we're here. Why are you jealous of them? Is it because they legitimately wronged you? Or could it be because they just have something that you don't? What James is saying is that's not just unwise, that's petty. That's low-level, foolish, simple-minded drama. He's saying it needs to stop. To punish someone because they have something that you don't, not because they've literally wronged you. And here's the next question I want to ask. Are you a good friend? Are you a good friend? And here's how you can know that you're a good friend, is because people will share things with you that they wouldn't share with just anyone. And I'm not talking about gossip. I'm talking about after God appeared to Abraham and he said, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to bring the nation's blessing through you. He told him a secret. And it was after that that he was called a friend of God. It's the first mention of friendship with God in the Bible. And it was after God told Abraham a secret. What a connection. And so here's, here's something to consider. Can someone share good news with you and not be worried that you're going to be bitter or jealous toward them? If so, you're a good friend. <laughs> Can someone share bad news with you and not worry that you're going to, oh, let me file that away because I might need that later on if they ever turn on me. And they're not going to use it against you. If, you, if, if that's happening, if you can be that, if others can do that for you, that's a good friend. A simple way to think about it would be if we want to be someone who others want to be around, super likable, who God uses, exchange your focus on the people who make you jealous and fix your focus on the one who can make you righteous. That's going to bring you genuine joy over the blessings of others. And so what do you do about this? Who around you has a blessing that you don't? And how could you be happy for them this week? That's how you fight this. And that's how we deal with jealousy. Next, James mentions selfish ambition. So ambition in and of itself is not bad, by the way. Uh, ambition is willingness to work toward a worthy goal. And we actually need a lot more ambition in the church. Um, it, it's, it's sad to think the world actually has more ambition than the church has. I mean, why, why would Walt Disney World have more ambition than God's plan A, the church? But we see this, I mean... Uh, the world has a greater commitment to excellence in the church in far too many spheres. Uh, the world has, has clearer vision and clearer dreams for how they're going to accomplish what they set in front of them as their goals, and the church often does. But I would submit we need more people with godly ambition, not selfish ambition, in the church. And I just want to tell you, for a church plant like ours, 
that's young. We're like a toddler church. We're figuring so many things out. We're sacrificing on an insane level to see salvation come. This is huge. Godly ambition is needed. And I just want to talk about some of the godly ambition, some things that I've seen in our church just recently. There was one family who completely rearranged their schedule so that they could be at our last weekender. They've since been commissioned, and one of them is actually serving in Coastway Kids today, taking care of some of your kids. There was another family who uh, was traveling every weekend. They were traveling so much on the weekend, but when they came to Coastway, they said, this church has, has added so much value to us. We see the value. We want to add value back. So we're going to rearrange our traveling schedule on the weekend so that we can be at church each and every Sunday. There was another family who said, our community group means so much to us that instead of planning when we'll be at community group around our kids' activities, we're going to plan our kids' activities around being at community group because we know that's discipling our kids. That's, that's putting Jesus as the priority in front of our kids, and we want to be about that. There's a retired couple who recently stepped into our church who's generously committed to, to, to giving their time, their talent, their treasure to see us get in a building so we could build more disciples. Godly ambition. There's a whole caravan of college students. We love you guys. Can we cheer on our college students, by the way? So much of our church happens because of you guys. And they're out there serving. They don't even hear you right now. They'll watch it online later and feel good about themselves. But this whole caravan of college students is, is you know, college students are sleeping in on Sunday. Let's say the plain thing. There's a whole group of college students who have been so deeply impacted by Coastway Church that they're showing up early and they're helping us set up all of this. They're doing more than a lot of the adults who are here today. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying, like, that's, that's what we are seeing happen in a, a, a generational cohort that's known for taking instead of giving and now they're giving instead of taking. Isn't that incredible? And so that's godly ambition. And as your pastor, my prayer is that every person who calls Coastway home could be filled with godly ambition. Not just for our church, but for your marriage, for your kids, for your future, for your career, for your resources, for your lost neighbors. But the problem is when you take God and others out of it, ambition becomes selfish. And you start building your kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And what James is saying, that's a recipe for a whole lot of conflict. According to James, this is no way to live. It's like dumb and dumber, except it's not so funny. And that's why James goes on in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So wisdom from below that feeds on jealousy and selfish ambition is not what we want. Uh, it's not just unwise. Did you see what James called it? He said it was demonic in, in verse, verse 15. So there's two ways that you could think about the demonic. There's the ordinary demonic and there's the extraordinary demonic. You want to know the way that the devil's going to put you in checkmate? Is he keeps your understanding only at the extraordinary demonic. The extraordinary demonic is like goo on your mirror when nobody else is uh, in the house. It's, it's like those, the, like, I hear voices, or the exorcism of Emily Rose, or like, I, like Jesus literally casting out a demon. Jesus was constantly interacting with the extraordinary demonic, and that was what we see a lot in the Gospels. But when then you get into the epistles, James, John, Peter, what happens is you see the ordinary demonic. He says, hey, if a root of bitterness takes, uh, takes, gets planted in your heart, that's the work of the devil. Don't give the devil a foothold. If, you're, if, it's, if it's jealousy, if it's selfish ambition, that's the ordinary demonic. You're, you're actually being controlled by demonic forces whenever you give yourself over to this. 
most people are being controlled by this. Most people in our host culture. This is, this is, they are under the influence of the ordinary demonic. And, what's the, and you're like, what's the counter vision to all this? What's the alternative to all this? Well, it's this. Wisdom from above brings peace. And this is verses 17 through 18. Wisdom from above brings peace. And I want to I anticipate an objection because you're here, and this is something that you're honestly thinking. You're like, if I surrender my life to Jesus, that's actually going to bring a lot of conflict with my friends and family because they're not going to be about this. And uh, what I want to say about that is there's a difference between righteous conflict and unrighteous conflict. So Jesus dealt with righteous conflict. It was conflict that came from doing the right thing. But what James is saying is that selfish ambition and jealousy that precipitates conflict, that's unrighteous conflict. It's not necessary. You don't have to have it. And so there's a big difference right here. You're going to face righteous conflict, but the peace, the peace that James talks about is what we're actually looking for. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure. That means innocent. Peaceable, that means the person who has it is at peace. Uh, Gentle, that's another word for me open to reason, willing to admit where you're simple, foolish, or sinful, or selfish, full of mercy, that means your eyes and your heart are open to the felt needs of others, and good fruits, that means you're living a desirable life, impartial, you treat people with dignity and equity, and sincere, you're not a hypocrite, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So wisdom looks at making peace, and it looks like making peace, And here's what James is saying. Some of you aren't making peace, you're faking peace. You're pretending when you're around that person. Because if you were being really honest, it's just you, head on the pillow at night, nobody else, you don't have the courage to actually go about it God's way. Or you don't have the humility to go about it God's way. So you're you're faking peace, or you're just breaking peace. And what James is saying is that the person whose life has come under the agency of the Holy Spirit by the power of salvation that only comes by lifting your eyes to Jesus. That person is going to be wise, and that person is going to make peace. The test of wisdom is this. Do you have peace? I didn't ask if your life was going great. Do you have peace? Here's the other test of wisdom. Are you making peace? Do you have peace, and are you making peace? This is what James is getting at right here. And what I want to do is I just want to, I want to put two questions in front of us to help us respond today. Just two two questions. The first question is this. Will you lift your eyes to the one who is wise? Will you lift your eyes to the one who is wise? Um, There was someone who, on the way out um, a few weeks ago, I think it was the Sermon on Partiality, just came up to me and said, I think I got this wrong my entire life. I I just, that was so relatable because so much of the things that I stand up here and I'm pursuing myself, I'm working on, I feel like I've, I've missed it. But, but that really got my, got my attention because the good news is the gospel is for people who missed it. The gospel is for people who got it all wrong. What does James 1.5 say? Let him who asks, ask God, who gives generously without reproach. He's not going to hold that thing in your past against you when you were foolish, when you were simple, or when you were a scoffer. He's just going to say, come to me and let me pour out wisdom on your life. And so help looks like this shifting your focus from those who make you jealous and lifting your eyes to the one who can make you righteous. If you will, you won't see jealousy. You'll see the opposite, and that's actually, if you think about it, generosity. Jealousy is I want what you have, but generosity is I want to give you 
what I have. And you see Jesus, one who's not about taking good from you, but about giving good to you. And for those here today who have come under conviction over selfish ambition, for every look at yourself, you need to take 10 looks at Jesus. Or as Paul said in Philippians 2.5 at the beginning of that treatment of meekness, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, whose meek and selfless ambition was to bring peace. The peace of salvation. And so the more you, you lift your eyes to him, the more that your ways and the more that your life is going to come and look like his, and that includes your ambitions. Last question is this. Will you walk in the wisdom that comes from above? Will you walk in the wisdom that comes from above? And here's the deal. I, where do you lack wisdom? Where, where is that? And I, I, I don't know. I don't know everything that's going on in your life, but I could, I could, I could guess that the place where you lack wisdom is, the, is probably the place where you lack peace. And so what you might want to do is you might just want to fill in the blank and say, God, the area where I need wisdom today is this. And some of you, that might be a relational wisdom. God, I need the wisdom to confess something that I got wrong to someone around me. But would you give me the wisdom? Or, 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 or maybe uh, you need to confront something. God, I need the wisdom to call out this thing that's going on in this relational d- d- dynamic, and I've been peace-faking, I've been peace-breaking, but I need to be about peacemaking in this relationship. Others of you, you need, you need wisdom spiritually. You're, you're, and there's, some, there's something in your life where, where, where you need to you need to trust God through it. You can't make sense of it, so you need to trust God through it. Or maybe there's some sin in your life and you just say, I need to turn altogether from it. Did you know that both of those are going to take wisdom? And here's the help and here's the hope. It's that God will give wisdom to the one who asks. He will give us what we need, where we need it, when we need it. And what our job is, is by faith to walk in the wisdom that comes from above. If you would, just bow your heads and open your hearts. I want to invite our care team to come, to come forward. And maybe you're here today and you just you need wisdom in some area. Um, we have some of our people, some of our leaders, Ethan and Lauren, they would love to pray with you. Or maybe you just need to come for, forward for somebody who needs wisdom, but they're not seeking wisdom and you want to pray over them. At any point, you just stand up and you come. You come. As we sing and as I pray, you come. Father, thank you that we can ask you for wisdom and you will give it to us without bringing up the past, without telling us all the things that we did wrong before we turned in humility and meekness to seek it. Lord, I pray that we would receive that wisdom, that we would lift our eyes to the one who is wise, see wisdom in the cross, wisdom in the resurrection, hope and help there. And Lord, that we would walk in the wisdom that you give us when we ask for it. We know that you're going to give it because you're a promise maker and a promise keeper. And Lord, we know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. So we look to you and we want to live for you. Help us to have more peace and less conflict because we look to you for wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.